Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark, and he is back for a record-breaking eighth appearance on the Book Club episodes. He is the official art correspondent of Mega City Book Club. He's also the record-breaking Pete Wells. Welcome back, Pete. Hooray! Hello, my friend. <laughs> it's lovely to be back. And award-winning was what I meant to say. <laughs> Can't possibly forget that. Award-winning well, author, we will no come, less. We will come to an award-winning Pete Wells uh, in a while, but we've got a big book in front of us. You're surrounded by digital devices with several versions of today's book. Uh, <laughs> we're going to get straight to it, and then we're going to talk about your own projects um, in an hour, about an hour's time, I guess. Tell us, Pete, <laughs> what have you chosen time. to come back on the book club with? My um, first non-2000 AD choice, and it's uh, From Hell by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell. And for me, this time, it's the Master Edition. Oh, so I've got the knockabout trade from the year 2000 by Alan Moore and Eddie Campbell with some contributing extra art from Pete Mullins from chapter 5 onwards I noticed um, publication history from he- from hell is slightly <laughs> confusing to me <laughs> yeah to everyone I think from Wikipedia it tells me it was originally published in a comic called Taboo uh, then it went off into its own comic that Moore and um, Campbell published during the early part of the 1990s. It was collected in trade paperback as different publishers on either side of the Atlantic. Over here, it's Knockabout. In America, it's Top Shelf Productions. And then you've also got what I haven't... Well, in fact, you've got two versions that I haven't got because you've got the colorized version as well, Pete. Yes, so that's the master edition, um, but I've had to buy that digitally. I've got the knockabout edition, but I couldn't find it, hence having to buy that. But I also bought the uh, the compendium as well, which we'll chat about, which is very much worth um, a read if you like this book. Um, about the colorized edition, I'm sure there might be people listening to this who are aware of the work who might be screaming now, seeing it's heresy and sacrilege. Um, but actually, I found the, the colour edition to be really very good. So it's coloured by Eddie Campbell, so it doesn't feel like too much of a cheat. And I know we'll talk about the artwork later on, but um, because of the denseness of the, the book and so many things going on and so many characters, it could at times be a little bit confusing. And the... The colour is a sort of extra little aid for you when you're reading it. Um, it, it helps you to sort of, you might see some um, sh- sort of shock blonde hair or something. You, oh, that's a Prince Eddie or something, and it really helps. So, um, yes, I was hesitant about buying the colourised version because it did feel a little bit wrong, but I'm very glad I did. It's great. So, Pete, you mentioned this is your first non-2000 AD title that we've covered on the book club. Um, it's an interesting choice. Uh, obviously, it features <laughs> a you know, 2000 AD alumnus in, in the form of Alan Moore. But why, why did you pick this one to return to the book club with? <laughs> Despite its horrific subject matter, um, it really is my favourite um, 
Alan Moore graphic novel, and I think it's it, it really is a masterpiece. It's a it shows what you can do with the form of graphic novels, um, and it's different to to any other sort of media that you get. So we'll talk about sort of time how that's presented in this book and it gets to do things like repeating panels and it does all sorts of clever things that wouldn't have worked as well in any other medium so as well as loving the story it's a really exciting um way to present the the form so i thought that would be interesting to talk about so you've mentioned it's um horrific subject and you know for anybody who's not familiar with it we should give a slight content advisory because it's going to get grim um what is in a nutshell what is from hell about pete oh, in a nutshell um right so this is the hour taken up now <laughs> um it's a look at the um the white chapel murders of the late 19th century um, or the Jack the Ripper killings. Um, in a nutshell, that's what it is. But there are so many themes and layers on top of that. It's almost a, a forensic examination of that time period. Um, but with that comes a really strong caveat of sort of um, morally, you have to remember that it's fiction because it's using real people and real events and quite sort of harrowing and grim events. Um, and you have to remember that this is just fiction. So it's um, it's presented very matter-of-factly and it's backed up with lots of evidence and there are lots of real-world events that happen in it. But it's still a work of fiction because uh, it presents lots of people in a really negative light that, that may not particularly have been horrible, particularly um, the the person who would identify as the killer um, was actually quite a, if you research him, quite a progressive and um, positive man. So it's all about um, the Jack the Ripper killings. And without spoiling too much, the premise is that um, there's a um, Prince Eddie, who's the grandson of Queen Victoria, has a relationship with a commoner who works in a sweet shop um, called Annie Cooper, is it? Annie Crook, she's called. Um, and they end up having a uh, She ends up getting pregnant um, and have a secret wedding. Um, and Queen Victoria finds out about this, and obviously the the royal bloodline can't be tainted by us common scum. Um, so poor Anne is quietly carted off to an insane asylum and lobotomized, and Prince Eddie just gets a little rap on the knuckles and told not to do it again. The the child that they have comes into the um to the attention so that. The, Annie herself was um, friends with um, four sex workers from Whitechapel. And I think at some point in the book it mentions that there were at least sort of 1,200 sex workers in Whitechapel at that time, which was a very conservative estimate. Um, the, the child ends up with, with one of these sex workers who um, has to pass her on back to, to Anne's parents. Um, 
and these poor sex workers on top of the horrific life that they've got that, that Alan Moore really delves into uh, being um, blackmailed or charged protection money by an awful East End gang called the Nichols Gang who were cutting up um, the sex workers. Um, so they try and blackmail the Queen um, by saying we know about this royal baby and if you don't give us £10 to pay off the Nichols Gang, we're going to go to the, the newspapers. Um, so Queen Victoria wants it sorting out. So she has her um, one of her chief physicians, um, Dr. William Gull, who's this real person, um, and she asks him to sort it. And Sir William is um, quite unhinged and a very complex character, and he um, wipes these poor ladies out in ever more horrific and depraved ways. <laughs> um, so that's the thing. It's all based on um, a few conspiracy theories, and we all know what we think about conspiracy theories. Um, there's often very little truth to them, um, but it was um, Stephen Knight's book, I think, from the 70s that was called Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, um, which put forward this uh, delicious story and alan moore's just ran with it so that's the uh the basic premise but on top of that there are layers and layers and layers and themes and all kinds happening it's exceptional so alan moore and his writing in let's talk about the layers and some of the stuff that comes out from his his researches um, he's weaving in real people, real times, real events yeah. into this uh, fantastical story. Um, I mean, I know from my own reading that he did a lot. He was perhaps inspired by a TV documentary that he saw about Jack the Ripper in the 80s. Um, yeah. I know that he spent an awful lot of time getting old, very obscure books from the British Library about... <laughs> the various characters and so on. Um, what, it's, it, let's just get us to the basics. What do you think about the writing, and it is very complex, about the writing by Alan Moore in this book? I think it's, it's an absolute masterclass in um, storytelling. Anybody that wants to say that um, comics or graphic novels are for, for children <laughs> really need to look at this. It's as, as dense and complex as almost anything you can read. It's almost a precursor to that. Um, what was the novel that he wrote recently that was um, some magnum opus? It's, it's as dense Jerusalem. as that. Jerusalem. Yeah. Um, it's a 500-page forensic no pun intended study of the time period but on top of that we have um all of these themes that are going on so things such as um the um, psychology of serial killers a real um in-depth look at depravity and um the desperate times of the Victorian era, we have um, time as the fourth dimension. We have architecture. We have um, <laughs> we have <laughs> what is it? Um, Dionysian thinking versus a, 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 what is it? Apollian <laughs> thinking, which is basically sort of order versus chaos. Um, 
we have a, a real, um, which again comes from Stephen Knight's book, but a real study of the Masons, and a, um, he uses any any um, opportunity he can to have a knock at the Masons. Um, his writing in this is incredibly complex, incredibly entertaining, incredibly explicit, um, and just a masterclass of what can be done in our favourite uh, medium, I guess. And you mentioned, of course, that this is Alan Moore writing about real people, real, yeah. uh, you know, characters from Victorian times, people who had lives and yeah. did things, um, you know, real things. Um if I start, we, before I get down to sort of like the ground level of Whitechapel, let's just mention quickly, he brings in quite a number of sort of like what we might say famous names and people. Yes. Um, start with some of those before we get down to the street level. <laughs> yeah, um, when I read this, this was obviously a, a written long before the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, but... Um, it was very much, um, whereas the, the League would be fictional characters, this was very much anyone who was, <laughs> everyone who was anyone in that Victorian era. So we get um, all kinds of cameos in from, um, we get um, John or Joseph Merrick, um, the Elephant Man's in there. We get... Um, oh, is the painter Walter Sickert? Yes, Walter Sickert. Um, it's um oh, there's, there's, sorry, there's a name on the tip of my tongue that's escaping us, Eamon. The beautiful Robert Louis Stevenson turns yeah. up. Um, obviously, there's the royal family. Um, there yeah, it is Queen Victoria. It's oh heavens above the beautiful writer who. Um, Oscar Wilde. Oscar Wilde, thank you. That's that was uh, the, who was on the tip of my tongue, um, and obviously all of the um, people from the Ripper cases. Um, <laughs> there's even um, <laughs> Marilyn Monroe and um, Eric Morgan make a little cameo in there, and we'll get on to the the some of the the sort of more abstract time aspects of the book but you get people like peter sutcliffe myra hindley um some the the career twins you get you know some of the famous villains from our times as well um so it's pretty much anybody that was <laughs> anyone at that time and beyond <laughs> And then, of course, he gets to depict, as you say, the ordinary sort of working people of Whitechapel. Uh, there's, there's William Gull's driver, Netley. There's, of course, the sex workers who you mentioned. Um, people going around about their ordinary business. People, as we say, who, who lived and existed. And Alan Moore, as ever, with his, his sort of knack for dialogue, his dense characterization he brings them off the page to life for us doesn't he yes and he, he does it very very skillfully as you would imagine um the the dialogue is um often of the time so you're sometimes having to sort of research what does that mean he's and because he is such a, an articulate and clever band sort of the the language of 
uh, William Gull is very sort of verbose and lots of grandeur and metaphor and uh, um, lots of exposition comes from Sir William. And then there's the constant humour of, you You mentioned uh, Natalie, his driver, who might be my favourite character in the book. Um, and there are some beautiful scenes with those two um, where Sir William knows he's an imbecile and is telling him all of his grand plans. Um, and he, I think he says something like, I'm only telling you this because you're not cognitively able to grasp what I'm seeing. And that he said, thank you very much, sir. That means a lot. <laughs> um, but then the language of obviously the um, the sort of working class people is very different. Um, and we get sort of um, nobility and royalty in there. Um, it's, it's, it's all very authentic, very uh, very entertaining indeed. And talking about another real person, of course, Inspector Abiline, the the the, uh, the police officer investigating the murders, the Whitechapel murders, is a major character in right the way throughout the book, and another. Uh, well, uh, well characterised, well drawn, well fleshed out character for us. Yeah, um, and so as part of this, um, getting ready for this, um, I'd foolishly watched the um, From Hell film as well. Um, Me too. <laughs> <laughs> which um, decides to to merge together. Abilene, who was a real man, with another real man who was uh, Mr. Lees, who was the clairvoyant. That um, he was the Queen's clairvoyant, and it was him that sort of fingered Sir William as the the killer, and it mushed them together, didn't it, as one character, <laughs> which was very difficult to watch in the in the film. Um, but yeah, it treats him as a, as a an excellent character, um, and. You can see how frustrating the case is for him, and one of the things that's wonderful about the book is that um, all of the upper echelons of society know that this is happening and why it's happening, um, but the poet inspector doesn't, and he has to treat it like a a normal case, um, and he's constantly sort of button heads with. Um, his superiors who know that this is happening and why it's happening and uh, is being very much kept in the dark. He's also on the ground, you know, in uh, Whitechapel and has dealings um, with um, the victims, some of, you know, before they they get killed. And um, particularly there's a, a relationship that springs up that it tries to keep very subtle, but it suggests a relationship between himself and the Ripper's potential last victim. And that's written very, very well, where it it's subtly suggests it, but never overtly states it. And it, it explains, so apparently, um, according to sources, he was quite um, sort of against sex workers at the end of his career. And this gave you a reason a reason why but he was a, he's a great character and he was somebody who'd escaped Whitechapel hadn't he um, yes. and then poor lad was 
brought back in for this horrific case that he was never going to solve because of all the obstacles that were put in his way. So another great character and a real person. <laughs> so with Alan Moore's work, it's always, uh, as we say, very densely written. It's, there's always lots of layers. There's lots of references. Alan Moore is possibly the best red man in the world. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> we used to have in Alan Moore books where we would read somebody else's annotations to the book. In my knockabout trade, I've got Alan Moore's very own 1996 annotations at the back of the book, which I've yeah. been reading as I go along. You, of course, we're going to talk about a couple of different editions you've got, but you've got an even more um, annotated version. Uh, the, is it the compendium? Yeah, and it's phenomenal. Um, and I only got it this weekend, and so I've been trying to read as much as I can um, in preparation for this. So this is, I think it's something like um, just 90 of um, Alan's 530-odd pages of script, um, but it's the actual scripts. The script. These are scripts that were only intended um, to be seen by Eddie Campbell, but... My goodness, the prose, like the his writing is just exceptional and so entertaining. Um, such a funny man. So in the appendices that, that you have, um, you see it a lot in that. Um, it's constantly entertaining. He's very um, self-deprecating, isn't he? Um, considering how much of an absolute genius he is. Um and yeah, the scripts are the same. So you get, um, you know, well, you know, I'm a huge fan of John Wagner's condensed writing style. And there's the famous headshot grim um, panel description from John Wagner. This is the exact opposite. This could be three pages of panel description for one tiny little <laughs> nine um, paneled panel you know nine panels on a page and there might be sort of three pages that that alan moore's written for a a panel that's going to literally be um sort of what two inches three inches by two inches crazy and he'll talk about in this book so it's obviously the original was black and white but he'll talk about um the color of somebody's clothes and things that you can't see in the panel and um, you've got a feel for poor Eddie Campbell who must have sometimes just looked at these huge descriptions and thought, how on earth am I going <laughs> to write those? Um, and again, uh, he pulls no punches with the, the depravity and stuff. So um, there's a very famous panel. It was one of his opening panel descriptions where he wanted Eddie Campbell to draw sort of two very prepubescent children having sex <laughs> as just an everyday part of um, London life and that might be true but clearly <laughs> you wouldn't write that, you wouldn't draw that um, in a comic that's that's going to be for mainstream entertainment um, but what a writer, what an amazing man and 
Um, this is where sort of the themes are incredible. So um, we talked a little bit earlier about the sort of the layers and the themes. One of the big themes of the book is um, around the concept of time, isn't it? Um, and we have a um, a whole um, sub sort of plot about. The, the, the nature of time and um, Alan talks about a, um, a thesis that was written that time is um, a repeating sort of um, construct and he, he says that so, so something like a hundred years before the, the Ripper murders there was somebody running around Whitechapel slashing ladies bottoms with a knife then a hundred years later you get the Ripper then 50 years after that there was some other sort of bloodshed, and then um, 25 years after that, something else, then 12 and a half years. And he talks about these arches of time, and then they intersect with, with some sort of big um, event, um, which then leads him into sort of architecture, and he, he does a study of um, Victorian architecture and the, the churches of um, Hawksmoor, which... Um, and he talks about the sort of pagan um, aspects of those, and everything just builds on top of everything. But to read his, his scripts where he discusses them, it's fantastic. But going back to the time stuff, um, you'll you'll pick up that the book is so dense. You pick up on little things every time you read it. So one thing I noticed on this read was. Um, for at least three of the um, the victims, we get to see them as they were discovered post-murder before they're murdered. And Eddie Campbell talks about it in the compendium about these echoes of the, the future. So we see um, one of the victims, I think it's Annie, um, she's lying sunbathing and her legs at a certain angle and her skirts up around her, her waist and everything and then obviously that's how she was found you know a few weeks later we get a a picture of um mary kelly sort of lying on the bed with her legs splayed apart and her arm behind her head and her um, arm across her chest and then when we get to potentially her murder that's exactly the the pose that she was in when she was found one of the other girls, she gets thrown out of a, a DOS house and all of her clothes and effects get thrown onto the ground and the, her, her clothes are in the exact position that she was found in and our effects that are also thrown out are in the places where the Ripper put her things when he ritualistically um, killed her. And it's all of these incredible glimpses of of the future and the past that you get throughout the book. Um so even in chapter one, um, there are panels that are repeated all the way in chapter 14, um, and it's just brilliant. And it's mind-boggling how his mind worked, <laughs> how he's sort of crafted all of this. So he talks a lot about architecture and the great architect with it being the Masonic thing and what a bloody architect he is with, <laughs> with his storytelling because he lays out things so well that repeat and just add to this narrative of, of time being a um, not a linear construct. Phenomenal. 
And I mean, mentioning another architect, of course, we learn, we get to learn a great deal about the uh, architect Nicholas Hawksmore and his churches, <laughs> yeah. uh, which are woven in almost literally into the history of London and yeah. the history of these murders. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm reminded from what you're saying that, you know, people say if you want to learn about the uh, the whaling industry, you have to read Moby Dick. If you want to learn about late Victorian London, yeah. you need to read from hell. <laughs> yeah, and the, he treats Hawksmoor's churches almost as a character themselves, doesn't he? Mm. So the church is a kind of stalk and the ladies as much as the killer and the sort of omnipresent in in the panels, they'll always be there looming over everything. Um, it's phenomenal. And and I guess we'll we'll chat about a couple of the chapters. So there's a, a chapter that really divides opinion with people, but it's a phenomenal piece of work. I think it's chapter four, and it's a coach ride through London, isn't it? And a, a lecture on architecture, history, um, philosophy, the deities it's it's about um good versus evil order versus chaos and i know a lot of people struggle with that chapter because moore's writing is so complex um but it's incredible and they go all around london and then at the end the big reveal is all of these real places where you'll find masonic buildings hawk moore churches um obelisks, all kinds of um, or areas where there's been significant sort of pagan rituals or whatever. And then at the end, they, they join up all the points and it makes a perfect pentagram and it's just awe-inspiring. But that comes back at the end, so there's a um, it's like he's laid the ley lines and then um, when, you know, spoilers, um, at the end we get a, a really trippy um chapter where he ascends to greatness and he follows these ley lines that he laid all the way back in chapter four and it's just exquisite writing and phenomenal <laughs> and we get to visit parts of that chapter in that chapter it's, it's mind-bogglingly fabulous <laughs> so i will we will come back to sir william Gull and his voyage through London and the conspiracy, and also the timey-wimey yeah. stuff a bit later on, Pete. Yeah. Let's turn to the artwork for a while. Let's talk about Eddie Campbell. Right. Uh, originally black and white art. Let's start with that. Um, I don't know if you saw this in my notes, that I reckon Alan Moore discovered Eddie Campbell in a fanzine because <laughs> when I recently did the Marvel UK title The Daredevils... And Alan Moore was writing fanzine reviews for that magazine. He was talking about um, an interesting artist he'd come across in a fanzine called Eddie Campbell. <laughs> right. Well, yes, um, he did, I think I'd read. He did know of him, and they had done they had done something together before this. I think. Right. Um, but it was Steve Bissett, I think, who suggested Eddie Campbell for this, and a, a very good suggestion because the the artwork is um, it's almost like woodcut, penny dreadful um, style of artwork, isn't it? Which fits in incredibly well with with the piece. Um, it's because of the denseness of the book and the 
dozens and dozens of characters in it and the um, deceptive simplicity of some of the artworks. It's very scratchy, isn't it, and very dirty and and, um, very black. Um, Sometimes it can be a little bit difficult to fathom out, particularly some of the characters, which is why I said the colour version was actually very good for helping sometimes when the characters um, were a little bit difficult to be able to tell apart. Um, but it's it's magnificent artwork, isn't it? Um, and he he had help, didn't he, on some of the the chapters? A chap he, called Pete Mullins, I believe. Yeah. So I, I'd read that he'd done some panel layouts, and sometimes um, Pete Mullins would do some of the the pencil. And Pete Mullins helped a lot with the um, the architecture. So some of the buildings, I think Pete kind of roughed out, and then he inked over the top. Um, but it's um yeah it's it's phenomenal work it's very um he said that he doesn't like to show off he wanted to write he wanted to draw everything very matter of fact sorry so um there is a, a one of the rippers victims where he it's almost like an action scene um i think it's his fourth it's when he does two in in one night and that's a very showy of the of the ripper jumping out of the carriage and grabbing the lady and it's all very fast and graphic and all of that and he said he that was the only time that he wanted to do anything that was that kind of showy or fast paced everything else is very very matter of fact and um and and just like i say like a penny dreadful or a woodcut it's great um so so me me minor criticisms, because I, I, I should have mentioned this with um, when I was talking about the writing, I found that it, it did suffer sometimes a little bit from um, sort of Titanic syndrome. So you know how um, James Cameron wanted to put all of his um, Titanic knowledge in Titanic, and I think there was... <laughs> there's one bit where they're walking past it, um, just two men having a chat and one of the men says, yes, there's 200,000 tonnes of Irish steel on this beauty. And you're just like, well, nobody talks like that. <laughs> and it was just like a bit of dialogue as two men walk past. And then I think when the, the Titanic's going into the water, I think Leonardo DiCaprio says to, um, to Kate Winslet, when it goes under, you're going to be sucked down like a cork, so you're going to have to follow the bubbles and swim up, and it's like nobody would know all of that. And I feel like sometimes in this, like Alan would write a big, long dream sequence that somebody had about our brother burning and looking at him, and where it had some kind of um, dramatic value, and he sort of brought it into our death a little bit. There was quite a lot of... Um, well, I'll meet you at number 13 Miller Street then, shall I? And we'll go for kidneys and broken biscuits. <laughs> and it was just a bit like, and then when you read the appendix, it says, yes, and in such and such a stomach, they found broken biscuits and kidneys. And you just like, it was a li- it did suffer a little bit sometimes from cramming too much in. It was a little bit uh, stilted. But exceptionally minor uh, minor criticism that but again so the the denseness sometimes i just 
though it is a complete sort of study of this fictional interpretation of what's happened, um, sometimes it was a little bit um, overindulgent, I thought. But you mentioned that, you know, in the original, Campbell's artwork is scratchy, it's black, it's grimy, it's dirty. It's so appropriate for Victorian Whitechapel, isn't it? Oh, very much so. And you feel the rain and the fog and the snow and the darkness as part of the story. Yeah, and it's beautifully cinematic, despite it being um, so grimy and and scratchy. Um, He really does get everything on there, and particularly considering some of those panel descriptions we were talking about. Um, But yes, um, it's terrifically kinesthetic artwork any depiction of the um the carriage moving with netley driving it's like you could see it as as a a a piece of cinema um the grime and the 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 property sort of does sort of bleed off the page with you um but then some of you know his architecture is incredible isn't it and beautiful and those stark white hawks mower churches um, really stand out. He has done a a magnificent job, particularly considering the style. So yeah, it, it does tick all of the boxes, doesn't it? It's great. Yes, because I mean, as you say, his architectural work, and as you say, he may have got some sort of prelims done on that in later chapters. But I'm looking at the one, the page of Saint Paul's Cathedral, and the number of lines on that drawing of Saint Paul's Cathedral. Um, which they encounter on Girl and Netley's tour of London. Yeah, uh, it's an astonishing piece of work. It must have taken, you know, <laughs> like days just to do that piece. That piece of architecture. Yeah, and there, there are some other real standout moments for me. Um, that particular chapter it takes place over a whole day, and just. Um, he draws it so well where you can tell that it's morning. It's still dark when he turns up and the fog's there and then the fog sort of burns away and you get a bit of a sunny day and then it begins to rain um, and they go for a meal and um, interestingly eat kidney pie, which I just thought was uh, really clever because that was a little hint at the eat a kidney a bit later on. Um, and then they go back out and the, the rain begins to dissipate and the sun comes out again and then night falls and sort of Eddie Campbell just depicts it also beautifully. Uh, a little page that I'm looking at at the moment is um, it's the beginning of Chapter 5 and it um, it's a, a set of repeating pages of three panels a page so most of the pages are about nine panels aren't they Um, but these are just three long panels one drawn in this very scratch uh, sorry some of them drawn in this very scratchy style which is um one of the sex workers days and the other pages the other panels are beautiful watercolour paintings of Sir William Gull. So it it's contrasts both of the days. So Sir William Gull wakes up in his nice bed and he has a bath and he has a hearty breakfast. And then you see the poor, um, I think it's Polly Nichols. You see her sort of waking up in the Doss house and they're all tied to the wall um, with the uh, the washing line and then the, the washing in the horse's trough outside and 
they're eating broken biscuits and um, I, that contrast of his beautiful watercolour style for his very opulent and uh, rich lifestyle versus their scratchy, horrible existence. It, it's perfect. And I loved, um, I read the panel descriptions for these in the um, the compendium and there's on um, page seven of chapter five when the, the ladies are getting washed in the horse's trough. Alan Moore describes it as like um, a painting of, like a, a pre-Raphaelite painting of sort of Victorian goddesses in a, a mill pond or something, but make it <laughs> a horse trough. <laughs> like, <laughs> and it's just great so that's one of the reasons why the compendium's so entertaining because it's hit, like his mind seeing how it works and and seeing these things transposed on the page later on in that chapter you get um so william's panels are all very big um whereas um polly's panels are all very small and squalid and she's been you know, picking up a client and having sex against the wall and it's all very horrible and claustrophobic while he's, you know, riding around in his um, open-top carriage <laughs> meeting the elephant man and so on. It's just phenomenal. Now, you mentioned, obviously, because we've got black and white, the original, yep. and it certainly conveys that sort of street-level griminess and the darkness and of it all. But it does have, as you said, there's a lot of characters in From Hell. Yeah. And let's talk about the very recent version, which is, I believe, called the master version yep. of From Hell, which has come out in the last five years or so. Yeah. Um, collected in 2020. Now, here, Eddie Campbell himself has... Um, Possibly in a response, I su- suggest you know po- you know to yeah. some people saying characters were difficult to differentiate. He's cleaned up some of the artwork, I know, and mm. of course it's now coloured as well. And you've got that on digital, haven't you? Yes, um, and it definitely. I've said a few times. I think the colour definitely helped, and I think you're right. Um, for me, I think I've read this about four, five times now in different versions and that was a bit of an issue was the characterization and it's nothing to do with uh, Eddie's talent as an artist because he's phenomenal but I think it's it's purely space you know most pages are nine panels um, tiny little panels where you're trying to get so much detail in so sometimes it was difficult to to tell who was who um, so this little who's who does help um so it's quite a, a challenging read because you're jumping from the the page that you're on to the appendices at the back because there might be a few little details that you don't understand to then the um the the front pages that have got all the characters on just to check, to check who's who. So you've got to jump about when you're reading it, but um, it, it really does help. And when you see them, they all are extremely different, <laughs> which is uh, interesting because sometimes you lose that when you're reading the, uh, the book itself. And I noticed those two pages of, like, you know, the cast, the cast of characters yeah. is in the master edition, the coloured version that you've yeah. got. 
um, which is not in my black and white version. So again, not. I suspect they produced that yeah. as a sort of helpful aid at some point. So I don't I, know. But, yeah, yeah, and I believe that the very last two pages might be more characters. Right. Okay. Yes, it is. Yeah. So we get sort of Edward Bedford and Caroline Maxwell and Robert Louis Stevenson and the Mad Monk and Netley's Horse. <laughs> so, you know, it's um, there are sort of four pages of um, sort of 20 characters each page. So, you know, that you've got 100 characters there, all Victorian era characters drawn in a very scratchy style. So it is going to be difficult. Regular listeners to the podcast will know how much Pete loves a horse in a comic. <laughs> At least it doesn't talk. Okay. <laughs> Let's get into conspiracies and then talk about the um, the treatment of time in this book. Um, Sir William Gull is given this task by Queen Victoria um, and he chooses in a way to build a conspiracy upon a conspiracy because what he sets out to do himself is even more sort of complex and weird and dark Um, (laughs) it's almost like he's taken this task of getting rid of these sex workers for queen victoria um and then he builds this even more elaborate work upon it this is where it gets extremely complicated, isn't it? Yes, yeah. So he he actually says in in his beautiful monologue to to Netley in chapter four that um, the task that he's doing for Queen Victoria is just very much the tip of the iceberg of a much much larger iceberg. And we see um, he does suffer a stroke, doesn't he? Which mm. which again it was a real event. He suffered a stroke. Um, in his life Um, and we see him sort of fall to his knees as he has this stroke and he sees visions of the gods so the the sort of masonic gods and i think jesus is in there and apollo the sun god and they give him this great task of um you know there's lots about the patriarch the patriarchy and the matriarchy and it's the, the kind of instruct him to um to honour the, the male sun god and to, to keep Diana down. So part of his great work is to um, cast terror amongst the female population and keep them down. So he's very he's very uh, much a misogynist in the book. And in reality, apparently he paid for scholarships for <laughs> ladies to become medical professionals. So that, that's, again, that the moral aspects of the book sometimes jar with you and that's not even the gruesome bits um so yes so he says that as his great work to um cut these ladies up to do a lot of blood rituals so that he himself can ascend to godhood so we see as he um goes through his his ripper spree with each victim he achieves more of this divinity and he begins to see visions um and 
Alan talks a lot about um, the aura phase or the phases of a serial killer and talks about the aura phase of a serial killer. So sometimes when they, they do murder the victims, they'll see sort of light and uh, have these visions. And we'll see that in the book. And again, aiming the colour version's great for... I mean, you do see it in the, the scratchy black and white one, but when you get these um, little flashes of colour and light... In the colour version, it's great. Um, but yes, so as he goes about his great work, he becomes more and more and more unhinged. But um, there's elements of truth in it. So um, as he kills one of his victims and becomes closer to divinity, he sees visions of the future. He sees um, some of the modern-day buildings in London and... Uh, and, and he is getting there. Um, there's a beautiful twist in the story that um, I don't know if we will talk about or not, that in in my interpretation, because, again, I think the end's very much open to interpretation, I like to think that he's failed in his great work. But, yes, it's all building towards this, this preordained master plan that, again, goes um, into this these um, arches of time. So the things that he's doing are preordained things that are just echoes of things that have happened in the past and will happen in the future. It's very complex. <laughs> and he, he talks about giving birth to the 20th century, doesn't he? So it's about um, seeing the century out, the 19th century out, um, by, you know, having this reign of terror to keep those pesky women down and make sure that the patriarchy is um, still the ruling class. And again, that brings the um, the architecture back in with all your phallic symbols on your churches and your, your obelisks and everything. It's just mind-boggling. <laughs> We we know that Alan Moore, let's say, is interested in mysticism. He's interested in um, arcane rituals. This, ha- yes. they, you know, he certainly puts all that in this book. Um, as you say, it's fascinating that Sir William Gull, the, you know, who was a doctor, um, believes he is delivering uh, the baby yes. of the twentieth century from Victorian, you know, late nineteenth century Victorian London. Uh, so we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. I noticed when you say about his visions um, and the gods he sees, there's that great line he has with his, again with his driver Netley. When they've got through Chapter 4 and their um, prodigious day trip around London and he's drawn out the points on the map and connected the dots and Netley says, Oh, God, and Gull says, Yes, but not yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is a great moment. Obviously, you've mentioned Chapter 4, this wonderful voyage yeah. through London. Chapter 14 is, I guess, at the, you know, the other end of the book is where he, again, uh, is having these weird oh, visions yeah. that go both backwards in time and forwards in time. Um, and as you say, he is almost troubled by visions of the late 20th yes. century and so on. 
Um, there's an awful lot of timey-wimey stuff going on here as well, which is, yeah. is complicated, but also fascinating, isn't it? Very, very much so. So some of the great timey-wimey stuff is you'll see um, repeated panels from the book. You'll see things that have happened already in the book will come back at different points. Um, but you also see, and it, it's very disturbing, um, glimpses of, of the future. And, and not only is he... Um, the sort of architect of his grand plan in his time, but he's given instructions to the serial killers of the future. And when he is um, sort of ascending at the end, he does visit the likes of Peter Sutcliffe and Myra Hindley and Ian Brady and, and all these different serial killers. Um, but all of the weird supernatural um, things that happen. So he'll appear as a disembodied head to one of them, or he'll knock something off a shelf for another one, and or he'll he'll be a, a disembodied voice to to um, Ian Brady. I think he says, "You will build me a garden." Like it's all really dark stuff, but it's all based on real, supposedly real events that have happened, or, or things that these particular individuals have reported happened to them and he and he brings that all in it's um it's brilliant so it, it's it's kind of like he's a, an architect for the all of the serial killers to come as well it, it, it's exceptional we see um we see sort of scenes from his death that have appeared really early on in the book and when you've read them you've thought what's that then and you're checking your appendices and then it happens and you're thinking oh right that's what that was so you know you really have to take notice of everything and, and the book really does um warrant several reads but that's some of the timey-wimey stuff where you um you're seeing things that have happened in the book that you might not have understood first time around and then it makes sense i noticed that he uh, that Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, appears, and one of the uh, stories that Alan Moore mentions in the uh, his notes, his annotations, is that Peter Sutcliffe himself told the story that when he was working as a grave digger, he believed he'd seen a ghost in the graveyard who'd spoken yes. to him, and in this book, that is yes, Sir William Gull who's yeah. speaking to him, and. I suppose it gets back to this line, I believe. Or I wanted to ask you about a line I think Neil Gaiman and and Alan Moore discussed, which was that Alan Moore wasn't setting out to solve the Ripper murders. He was setting out to solve the riddle of London and the history of London and the you know what became of late 19th century into the 20th century. And as you say, all those sort of... Um, horrible figures of the 20th century that seem to be born out from this book. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and he does it. <laughs> um, there's not, he, he brings in so many um, events that have happened um, in history, um, and it all sort of builds towards the world war, doesn't it? Um, so we see that looming in, in the background, but we, we get the, the birth of Adolf Hitler, and some freaky coincidence that or incident that happened. Uh, um, it was a stretch, and, and he admits it's a stretch. But apparently, 
around about the time that Hitler was conceived was when these things were happening and there was also an incident where there was um, apparently a, a church um, gushed blood and he sort of, sort of tied all these things together but yeah um, that, that the, a big part of the book is that uh, Sir William is crafting the, the, the 20th century by causing all this chaos and um, shaping society we see some magnificent stuff. We see, again, it resonates with us because I was alive when the Yorkshire Ripper was around. Um, and I can remember as a child playing in the street on a balmy, sunny night um, and being frightened, you know, um, particularly, uh, and this is tackled in the book as well, so there was some lots of hoax letters around the time of Jack the Ripper, but also the Yorkshire Ripper. Um, and there was somebody called Wearside Jack who was, mm. um, he, I think he'd sent tape recordings to the police. Um, so as a child, we, and it was a Sunderland accent, so then the rumours were, all oh, the Yorkshire Ripper's from Sunderland. Um, and, and I can now, as a 50-year-old man, remember playing out in the street and being frightened, and ironically, Wearside Jack was arrested, I think, about maybe 15 to 20 years ago, and he literally lived about three streets away from us. But it was that fear, and I remember our parents talking about this and us as kids, like, being frightened in the street, and that's what, you know, Sir William's doing. He's creating fear and uh, trying to keep order on the streets by causing chaos. Terrifying. Terrifying. Dionysian uh, <laughs> terror and, yeah, creating monsters and horrors. Yeah. And as you say, Alan Moore has asked quite a lot. He, well, he asks a lot of his audience. He asks a lot of Eddie Campbell because he does have vast amounts of detail and information that he wants to get over in this book. Uh, all of his wide-ranging reading and... Uh, yeah. Um, his research is uh, it, yeah it's a book that needs a close reading you need in a way you do need those annotations and notes um, or maybe the companion piece that you've yeah. got as well because I must say the other sort of standout chapter from a, a really gruesome point of view is I think it's chapter 10 but it's the final the final murder that is just gut wrenching, isn't it? It's it's a forensic sort of time slowed right down, and you see absolutely every, it was the the Ripper's most appalling murder, where he really butchered this poor lady, and you see every single cut, you see every single movement over about what is it fifty odd pages or something? It's mm. awful, and I know that. Uh, read and I found that really very difficult to read because this is a real person and this was a real person's death that, that we're reading and a few years ago I read a, a book called The Jigsaw Man written by a fella called Andrew Britton who was the psychologist that had worked on um, real cases such as Fred and Rose West and Jamie Bulger and as a teacher you know I don't ever want to read about harm being done to children and 
you know, a few other high-profile cases, Colin Stagg and things like that. And I felt, you know, reading that book, I found it difficult and would often put it down and think, I don't, I'm not going to read that anymore morally. I shouldn't, I don't need to know that kind of stuff. And that's how that particular chapter feels when he he's sort of, his final murder, but again, an absolutely stunningly written piece of fiction because that's when he's at his most um, um, deranged and that's when he's really lost his sanity. Um, and we get to see, um, I think, me, one of my favourite points in the book, and, it, and it's what it uh, revisits when he, when he ascends at the end, is... Um, at one point when he's cutting this lady up, he's sort of having visions of a like a medical um lesson, isn't he? Where he's delivered a, a, a like an examination um demonstration and he's saying, So I'm gonna make an incision into the abdomen, da 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 and you see the um the audience sitting in the lecture theater watching and again, it's Sutcliffe, it's Hindley, it's Huntley, it's all of these future serial killers, and it's just, it's mind-boggling, isn't it? It's, so that chapter is, it's an awful read. It's a, it's a very difficult read, but such a strong piece of writing, it, it's incredible. And chapter 10 is called The Best of All Tailors, and if we, if we look at like the opening page and the closing pages of that... It gives us, or Eddie Campbell's gives us perhaps um, almost the sort of like very familiar image of Jack the Ripper, the sort of the the character in a long cloak wearing a top hat with a long knife appearing from the darkness and then disappearing into the darkness at the end of the chapter. And I've just noted that looking at it, as he sort of goes back to his carriage and Netley, his driver, that Gull's face... Um, at the end of chapter 10 is shown Eddie Campbell's put some textures on his face and it's almost like he's wearing the brickwork of London on his ah, face right. um, yes. that it, you know I've just noticed that as he emerges from these tight narrow brick lined alleyways and courtyards Yes, um, fascinating that. stuff but of course as you say in between those pages we have the most gruesome gore of the book, we have those visions again of flashes forward to the uh, characters you've mentioned. He sees scenes of a 20th century office that he seems to be in. He flashes back to bullying incidents from his own childhood. Um, Yeah, William Gull is going through some weird visions as part of this chapter. Yeah, amazing. And and when he talks about the, the that aura phase of the um the serial killer, he, he does a Masonic ritual where he, he cuts out Mary Kelly's heart and puts it in the kettle. And then apparently the police report showed that the kettle had been heated up to such a temperature that it melted. Um but he has to reduce the heart to ashes and then blow it as a Masonic um ritual but when the kettle uh when the heart is put in the fire that's when he sees the aura phase and there's a a beautiful panel where there's a window broken earlier in the story which is how he gets into the the flat and there's just this beam of light coming out of the window and out of the keyhole 
against the, the, the dark streets. Just, it's incredible. It's just fabulous. Um, I love, you said, the, the sort of classic depiction of the Ripper, but that's gull all the way through, isn't it? Where it's a recognisable by his silhouette, so the mm. top hat and the thick black coat. And he is a, a very powerful man, isn't he, in this book? And it's another thing to note that, in reality... In this time, he was very ill and too weak to be doing any of this kind of stuff. Um, but that's sort of conveniently ignored for plot purposes. <laughs> but they're both very upfront about that. The Alan and Eddie are very... I think Eddie Campbell, I read today, said something like, I like to think that we've got a character called William Gull who just shares the same name as the William Gull. And, and that, that sits better with us. <laughs> okay. Um, Eddie Campbell has, uh, of course, done his sort of semi-autobiographical comics, Alec. He's done his sort of Greek gods uh, adventures, Bacchus. Let me ask you about these two creators, because obviously Alan Moore has got a vast array of stuff, that a lot of which we've covered on this podcast. Is this the magnum opus? Is this the best work by these two creators, in your opinion? Certainly is, in my opinion. I adore V for Vendetta. That really sits well with me. Um, slightly less enamoured by Watchmen. Love it, but uh, you know I'm not really a superhero guy, and I know it's not your classic superhero um, comic. Um, but this, yeah, it's so dense. It's so um, entertaining. It's brutal. It doesn't pull any punches. Um, it's so clever. Um, this is definitely my favourite work from his and uh, unfortunately I'm quite ignorant for Eddie Campbell's work, this is the only work that I know of his um, and I love it so I'm, I'll, <laughs> I'll say yes but that's out of pure ignorance <laughs> OK, well I'll take you to Eddie Campbell and the Grail Page game in a moment Pete, but first of all let's just briefly mention that this was another Alan Moore um, work that got turned into a movie in 2001 by the Hughes brothers. <laughs> uh, the film from Hell stars Johnny Depp, Heather Graham, uh, Ian Holm, and just about every British character actor you can think of. Um, you and I have both tried to watch it this week. I think you managed to get to the end. I didn't quite get to the end. <laughs> um, it's not very good, is it? <laughs> no. And how could it be? That's the thing. Um, this is so dense. You could make an absolutely wonderful sort of 12-part serialization of it. It would be weird as anything and would probably be banned. I know they came up against a lot of censorship during um, the, you know, the publication of this, but it certainly it doesn't lend itself to a, a two-hour film, and especially with, you know... You've got to have a love interest, and um, there are some bits that that are, um, really stick close to the comic, and that's nice. And in the compendium, Eddie Campbell does um, take a few stills from the film and match them to his um, to his panels. And so, hats off to them for for trying. But it, you know, it was doomed to failure from the start, um, and some some daft choices made so having uh you know i think although it's it's hinted at in the book having mary kelly and abeline 
almost having some kind of relationship and the very subtle ending so you didn't get to the end of the film but the very subtle ending in the book um it's like giving the sledgehammer treatment on the um on the film um where it explicitly tells you the you know what happens to mary kelly um whereas that's sort of kept down a little bit in the book so it's not as subtle i don't know it was doomed to failure but hats off to them for trying it's like when people moan about uh you know some of our 2000 AD stuff and that i don't like them moan about it because at least somebody's tried <laughs> and and certainly um eddie campbell got a house out of it so <laughs> and i think in the um in the first chapter of of the book um I think they talk about the house that Jack built, which is um, the the pensions that Abilene and Lee's got for keeping quiet about the the cover up. Um, and there's Eddie Campbell got his own house that Jack built. So that's he's literally living in the house that Jack. <laughs> yeah. <built. laughs> so Good that's you know, yeah. So we can slag off all of these comic adaptions, but when the creators get what's due to them, then I never I never mind. Okay, so From Hell is readily available. Um, the film is easy to find. You can get the paperback versions of From Hell. It's only £7 on the Kindle. I've been looking up while you've been talking, Pete. The companion edition is very cheap. That's less than a tenner. The master edition, which is the colourised version, is £15. But if you've got kindle unlimited you can get the master edition yeah. digitally for free um which is nice and it's highly highly recommended anyone with an interest in comics or you know media you know create any creative you know it's to read alan moore's words as a it's a joy it's a blessing fantastic so from hell is easily available let us pretend that we could afford to buy some of Eddie Campbell's artwork for you <laughs> and display it or put it in a discreet folder under the bed, depending <laughs> on which pages you choose. Let's play the Grail page game, Pete. Give, you a, give us a couple of pages that you'd like. I found this really, really difficult. Sometimes, because there were so many pages I would love, and sometimes it was trying to find a one that um, had sort of nine coherent panels or whatever. Um, there are two that I, that I sort of decided on. I was looking at all the ones from Chapter 4, the, the ride through London, um, because he's, I loved any depiction of his, um, the coach and horses like that, that kinesthetic artwork that I talked about earlier on. I almost went for, I think it's the, there's a, a real favourite bit of... Um, I think it's the second murder where he leads, um, I think it's Annie Chapman, into the, the miller's yard. And he walks past the window, and we talked about it briefly earlier on, and he looks in the window and he just, you see, shock on his face, and he sees somebody sitting in the living room with Markham and Wise on the TV and um, Marilyn Monroe picture on the wall, and the, the share a shocked um, exchange of, of, of a glance um, and you read that and you think what on earth's going on here and so you 
dutifully go to the appendices and Alan tells this story of that site of that second murder that was um, often in the 1950s and 60s and 70s. There was ghost stories about a couple walking past the people would see a couple of ghostly figures walking past the window and he said I thought it would be fun to tie that in with this murder kind of thing or prudent not fun maybe um and he said but then I turned it on his head where because of the timey-wimey stuff and Gull having these visions of the future and stuff he said I thought it would be fun that he did a reverse ghost story where sort of Gull sees the future as opposed to the people in the house seeing the past. So I nearly went for that one because I just because it's such a fun and clever page. But I ended up going for um I think it's the one and only full page splash in the whole book. And it's chapter eight, page forty. So it's just after he's he thinks he's killed Mary Kelly, but he's got the wrong person. Um and he sees a proper vision of the future of um, it's sort of him celebrating that he's finished his masterwork. So he's got his his arms up. He's got his um, failed knife in his hand. He's what is it? Lis- Lisbon knife. Uh, Liston. Um, Liston knife. Um, and there's a big skyscraper. You might know what building it is, Eamon. I don't know. Um, well, it's mentioned in the notes that uh, let me just find the notes because. I was going to ask you about this building, Pete. Right. Oh. Um, so, yeah, chapter 8, page, page 40. 40. It's called... Yeah, yeah. he's in Mitre Square looking at the tower. Um, uh, yes. Yeah. So tell us about this page a bit more, Pete. <laughs> so he's in... Just done his... What he thinks is his final murder. Um, so it's his fourth murder... And he laments that um, five is a much more mystical number, um, but he thinks he's at the end of his journey. Um, so he kills the the last of the sex workers, he thinks, and he has this vision of he's standing in Mitre Square celebrating that he's completed his great work and he gets this vision of the future of this um, beautiful sort of, I'm assuming, glass sort of skyscraper or is that like a bank in Mitre Square? Is that like a bank in area? So, yeah. yeah. Um so it's a real modern building and he's kind of so it's this this sort of I'm gonna be sound like a right pretentious person now. It's like this juxtaposition whoa of you know Victorian Jack um, raising his hands with his, his knife in his hand against this modern skyscraper and it's as I say, it's the only splash page, I think, um, and it's excellent. So it, it's it's that page that I would have, I would choose. And it was something, sorry, that wasn't too graphic, both in terms of pornography or violence. You could just about get away with putting this one on the um, on the wall, even yeah. though he does have his bloody knife in his hand. Yeah, and. Um, we are ostensibly or originally a 2000 AD podcast, Pete. And I must admit, when I first saw this page, uh, I squinted and thought, 
He's not done King's Reach Town. Yes, I know. Yes, I, I was going to say that. Yes, it's uh, it's Thug Spaceship. <laughs> Turns the out it center. Yeah, but it, did but look it does like look it. like it, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So that that might be it. Subconsciously, that might be it, Ian, and that might be why I like it so much. Okay. <laughs> well, we're going to grant you that page. We're also going to find you the page with Morecambe and Wise sure. appearing on the telly as well. I think. What, what about yourself? What would you go for? Well, I, like yourself, Pete, I don't have any qualms about Chapter 4 and the voyage through London. Yeah. I enjoy that chapter immensely. I think it's one of my favourite chapters, yes. even though it is deep into conspiracy theory nonsense at times <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i thought i was going to pick one of his architectural pages like saint paul's cathedral or um saint george's church in bloomsbury which is very near where um we meet up when we have those terrible southern contingent pub meetings <sighs> yeah awful oh, but actually I, I went for chapter four page 25 is a page of rain basically it is just oh, Gull and Netley. You've got them on their carriage. They're in yeah, the rain. I'm looking at it. The bottom panel is almost like some French impressionistic glimpse of like under a railway bridge with the arches where they, you know, you sometimes have those workshops as they head down towards the river. Yeah. And it's just it's again it's it's not too gruesome at all, thank goodness. It's a page of line work. And it just is very atmospheric, I think. Very cinematic, yeah. very atmospheric. Um, so I'm going to choose that one. And again, I think I could probably just go back and get away with that one. Yeah. As opposed to some of the pages from the book. Yeah, so that's, yeah, the bottom panel of that page is very, very impressionistic, isn't it? Very, very it scratchy. Is. In that chapter, I almost went for, and it may be the church that you were talking about because I. Um, can't quite remember, but it was a two-panel page um, with one of Hawksmoor's churches on, and it was page 13 of that, where you, you get it sort of the, the the phallic church sticking up over the trees, and uh, that's where he oh, begins. Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. a beautiful page, and coloured, it's absolutely beautiful. It's really nice. Yeah, unfortunately, Pete, that would be within stone's throw of the Southern Contingent meeting. Oh, no, so. is that the one? Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, it's a really beautiful page, though. But, you know, that was before the Southern Contingent turned up and spoiled it. <laughs> <laughs> a soft Southerner. So, yeah, the, so unfortunately, William Gull gave birth to the Southern Contingent. <laughs> Amidst all the other horrors he created. <laughs> So, um, Pete, we've gone long, as I knew we would. Yeah, yeah. From Hell is highly recommended, um, you know, with the possible exception of DR and Quinch, certainly Alan Moore's finest work. <laughs> yes, of course. It was without seeing. <laughs> um, let's talk about guest projects. And there's a couple of things to mention. First of all, since we last spoke, um, I know 2000 AD covers uncovered sort of like... Um, has moved on from your good self, but it came out as an annual. You, you had a, it became it became a book. Yes, um, I was absolutely thrilled about that. So I still um, contribute now and again. I'm dead busy at the minute. I tried to do um, 
So, um, oh, the guy that's doing it's great, whose name's absolutely flew out my head. Um, but what a smashing lad he is, and he's uh, really picked the mantle up. But I said to him I would still do the magazine covers. Um, so I was still contributing the magazine cover, so you might have noticed that they were sometimes a little bit ruder than the um, <laughs> and more childish than the the prog covers. Um, and then I was delighted when uh, Mike Mulcher got in touch and said they were bringing out the uh, the covers uncovered annual. That was like a a real a real thrill for us. So um, yes, creator, I'm definitely classing myself as a 2018 droid now. <laughs> the P the P Wells droid is uh, effective and in the house. Uh, I'm just looking at the page on the 2018 shop, and it, sadly, it doesn't mention his name. Um, Richard Bruton. Is Rich, it? Yeah, that's right. Because it sounds too much like Burton, and I yeah. was <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, great lad, lovely fella, um, and he's doing a grand job. And and so obviously I'm, I'm still a huge fan of the comic and still get it every week. Um, and I do really miss doing it because I, I love like, that that whole project came out of love for the artwork. Um, so I really miss doing it. And you know when that jock cover was up just a few weeks ago, <gasps> my goodness, I would have given me right arm to have done a covers uncovered on that the the jock cover for the was it. Threads 40... Yeah, 44th. 44th, yeah. yeah. Oh, it was... No, 46. 46th, yeah. yeah. Um, incredible. So, yeah, um, but I love that it's still going, and I, I do hope that things will quiet down for us a bit and I can get back to doing some because it's one of my favourite things to do. So 2000 AD Covers Uncovered has become a book. No doubt the film studios are beating a path to your door for the, the film version. Yep. Gonna get, uh, I'm going to be played, well, both me and um, Richard Bruton are going to both be played by Johnny Depp. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and Heather Graham is going to come back and do it as well. Yeah. So. <laughs> um, and of course, if you make a film, you might be up for an award because you are now the award-winning Pete Wells. <laughs> we have talked a few times about your wonderful Century Stories, um, and you recently won—they won an award, Pete. You you went to a big awards night. Oh yes, yes, I've got a great story about this, Eamon. So um, for the last sort of four years, I've been really hard at work um, producing. Um, something called Inclusive Stories, which is a worldwide platform of um, sensory stories for students with significant and complex special needs. Um, but they're for everyone, really, you know. Um, and it's by my favourite company called Inclusive Technology, and they've been professionally animated and the beautiful the narrated by the lady that says the news at 10 on ITN with Nicholas Witchell. Um, and the way the work even is, um, it would everything's in rhyme and couplets, and it would tell the first couple of lines of the story, then it would stop, and you would present some kind of sensory prop 
to the child or adult that you were doing the story with because they obviously um sorry they often wouldn't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth so if you were walking along the beach you might have a tree of sand and you would walk their feet in it and then if you meet a mermaid you might feel some sequence for a tail or smell a crab stick or whatever and it's all sensory stuff but what i love about this product is that um that can be accessed on any device so they can be accessed on a laptop or a whiteboard or an ipad or um, a computer or an interactive screen or whatever Um, but they can be controlled using any access methods so children can control it using a mouse or the swipe of a finger or a specialist switch but they can also use it they can also control it using the eyes or by using just very slight head movements so children who can't speak or move can become the storyteller and it's absolutely beautiful it's magic when you see it Um, I've had like parents in my classroom coming and seeing their child who's never interacted being the teacher in the classroom and telling the story to all of his or her friends and I've had people in teas and it's lovely and so it's a real labor of love um and it got nominated for the Bet award for the best special needs product so this is a very prestigious award and won it um just a month ago and it was like the highlight of my life it was the the validation of me my life's work and i'm still can't stop beaming about it and a little bit emotional about it it was presented by um rory bremner <laughs> oddly so he was the kind of um the guy that that was the the compare for the evening so it was presented by somebody very um high up in the organization but he was the compare so when they announced that that my stories had won i was i jumped up and you know i'm a very sort of gregarious and excitable young man and i bounced up on the stage grabbed all the rory bremner gave him a great big cuddle and a kiss and said i love you rory and then the guy from the organization he got a kiss I bounced about the stage like an absolute maniac, so excited and happy. Um, and then the, the, the said at the start of the ceremony, um, can all the winners go back on stage at the end of the ceremony for a big group photograph? So just at the close of the, um, the ceremony, um, Rory Bremner gave this really nice speech about neurodiversity and mental health and all of this and how teachers and professionals are helping our children with the most significant barriers to do this that and the other and it was a really nice eloquent speech that he gave so then I went back up on the stage to get me photo took with the group photograph and I saw Rory Bremner and I said Rory I said can I just say I'm sorry for for grabbing your mate I said I was I was just really excited and he just looked at us with dead kind eyes not a hint of irony or anything and said they took took me shoulders and said now listen i can see that you're neurodiverse and you've got significant needs and he said and i think it's incredible what you've achieved and you just keep on being you 
and then like patted us on the head and basically diagnosed as a salmon special needs myself. So, and I was too polite to say, I haven't. So I just said, thank you, Rory. And then just went sloped up and got me phone it took. So that night I won like one of the most prestigious educational awards you can win. And got diagnosed as having special needs off Rory Bremner. <laughs> by Rory. Oh dear, okay. Um, but I'm very excited because it's also a finalist in two other really, really high profile awards. So next month, it's the Education Resources Award, which is like the Oscars for um, education stuff. Um, but it's also up for something called a Cody Award, um, and it's a finalist in that, and that's been won in the past by little-known companies such as Adobe and IBM. So that is like maybe it's a trip to Silicon Valley if I win that. And and you'll have to put the penguin suit on again. Oh, do I have to? You do look very smart. <laughs> oh, I hated every second of that. And one oh. of my theories is that we should all get to make our Oscar speech at least once in our life, and you've got to do yours. <laughs> oh, well, that was awful. So, thankfully, so I'd, I'd planned this speech that I was going to say. I knew who I wanted to thank, and I knew that most of all I wanted to say that, um, <laughs> that, that although my names at the, on these stories have come from decades of working with just the best children and the best adults, and they've helped create these stories, experiences with them, and there was much of their stories as mine, blah 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 Thankfully, I didn't get to make a speech on stage. You just had to collect your award and go off. But then backstage, you were interviewed and filmed, and that just blurted out as some absolutely ridiculous nonsense me saying, it's not about me. I'm an idiot. It's all about the lovely kids. I just love them. And then said, will you not put that on? And then just like sloped up. So we all, not all of us should get to make an Oscar speech. <laughs> <laughs> well, congratulations on the award, Pete. Thank you. I'm um, really delighted. You know, a, a couple of years ago, I know you're wrapping up, sorry, Eamon, but I had made like a bucket list of, of things that I wanted. And honestly, in the top three was um, to win a better award for me story so that's a big tick so now I've just got to assassinate Boris Johnson and cop off with Katie Perry and that's the the big three (laughs) (laughs) so the 2000ED covers uncovered annuals available on the 2000ED store uh, by the Bet Award winning uh, Pete Wells and Richard Bruton. Uh, The Century Stories is it still centurystoriespodcast.com yeah, so that's my wonky site, um, but the the posh versions are on helpkidslearn.com um, and then inclusive stories are on there. Okay, well, I'll put all those links in the show notes, including uh, where you can buy the Covers Uncovered book as well. Um, and, yeah, we will return to the subject of 2000 AD and we'll probably get back to Dread at some point. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Uh, I counted up, and you are leading the um, the book club appearances, Pete. <laughs> yes. Did you see it? This is number eight um, regular appearances, yeah. 
<laughs> not counting brief sound bites that we recorded at various conventions yes. over the years. Yeah. <laughs> Sober some of them as well, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> and will we be seeing you oh. in Bristol at Lawless? Possibly. Sadly not. I'm Sadly not. I'm devastated. So um, for Christmas, somebody bought me wife um, tickets to the Harry Potter thing experience that weekend and so i have to go to that and i'm absolutely devastated so i've been dying to see everybody pete wells free zone and a a quiet affair no hugs (laughs) no silly mac i'm shouting stacy whittle will have to go and uh, do all that for us she'll do it for (laughs) All right, Pete. Well, thank you as ever for giving up your time this evening on a school night and everything. Thank you. Loved it. We look forward to your return to the book club for number nine. Uh, And thanks to everyone for listening to Mega City Book Club. As ever, find my links and links to all of Pete's projects at megacitybookclub.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram, on Facebook, on Mastodon and the 2080 forums. And email me mcbcpodcast at gmail.com if you've got some notes that Pete can use in his next Oscars speech. (laughs) And until next time, when we're passing judgment on another great book, uh, it's goodbye from me and... Goodbye from the other mate. Bye.